Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm real excited um, today to have uh, someone in the studio with me who has done some pretty remarkable things. Um, Her name is Margaret McLean, and Margaret is an attorney. She is a law professor, and she is a radio host, and she also is the author of Whitey on Trial, uh, which is all about the the capture and the conviction of um, James Whitey Bulger. Margaret, thanks so much for joining me this morning. Well, thank you for having me, Susan. I'm, I'm thrilled. And t- what's going on in Boston this morning? Well, it's a very sad day in Boston. Two of our uh, firefighters were killed in the line of duty last week. So we have um, one of the funerals today and then another funeral tomorrow. And the way firefighter funerals go is thousands and thousands of firefighters from, from around the world have come to Boston to pay tribute. So it's, it's a very sad day as we're kind of going into that um, one-year anniversary of the Boston Marathon as well. And as you know, we had the terrorist attacks last year. So yeah. Boston is not the happiest place by, right at this point. Oh, but we're so very sorry. Strong. We're, we're a very strong uh, city, and we pull together for uh, firefighters. Yeah, so sorry to hear that. Yes. Um, You know what? I really want to start off the show, Margaret, um, learning a little bit more about you. We will we will certainly talk about the book. Um, And, uh, you know, I've done my homework and and read about your background and all of the things that you were doing. I'm I'm actually, you know, concerned we're not going to have enough time for me to ask all the questions I want to ask. But I'd like to start out um, about you and your background and your years growing up in Rome, New York. Well, I had a Rome, New York was a great place to grow up. I had a, a nice family, a brother who now lives in Rochester, New York, and mom and dad. So I grew up in a very uh, a nice little community on a lake and a big high school. So uh, it, the high school is so competitive, it really prepared me for Boston College and then BC Law School, and of course, uh, going on to be a prosecutor in a very high crime area. Of course, that was. Uh, an awakening for me going from Chestnut Hill, which is a nice, quiet area of B.C., uh, of Boston, I mean, to, uh, you know, one of the highest crime areas in uh, New England. So yeah, I, yeah. I, right away was thrown cases, uh, very serious cases, a lot of drug cases. I was in charge of the gang unit, and that's where I really got my taste and ended up uh, writing about this stuff. Yeah. Tell me, what was it in your, your early life, your younger years, that kind of put you on the path um, to becoming an attorney and and, um, battling some of the things that you have? Well, I didn't have any attorneys in my family, um, but I always, I have to tell you, I I watched television and I (laughs) really enjoyed some of the old uh, law and orders and uh, television like that. God, I'd love to be an attorney. I'd love to argue cases in front of the jury. So I took debate, all that stuff. And uh, just was fascinated with with arguing that that competitive spirit of the courtroom, and and that's where I ended up. Tell me, what did mom and dad do? Well, my dad was in sales, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Okay. So, yeah. And um, you you graduated Boston uh, 
magnum cum laude. Um, so clearly, you know, you did well in school academically. And um, some of the things that you've been doing require a lot of toughness. Um, a lot of the things that you see, where did that come from? Well, I have to say that um, I went to a very competitive high school, 500 kids in my class, and everything was a competition. So if you wanted to try out for tennis, like right now in, in the town where I live in, in Norwell, Massachusetts, there's really no tryouts. But for, for every single thing I did, like just the tennis team alone was uh, three tryouts and cuts, and nothing came easy. So academically, it was a tough school as well. So I just, just you had to work hard for every single thing that, that you got. And when I went on to Boston College, it was actually, believe it or not, easier than uh, my high school. So I think the uh, spirit of competition was in that bigger high school, and that carried through uh, life, really. Yeah. Were you an athlete? Yes, I I, I played a, a lot of tennis. I still do. I still work out every day, mm-hmm. and I, I like the competition. Maybe that's it. It goes, goes boils down to good old fashioned competition and just getting this Whitey story. You had I had to deal with competition. In it was a hot story this summer. So there were other people writing books. I had to. Uh, be first to uh, market with the national book after the trial. So that, that made for 18 hours, days, really, uh, be behind the computer getting it done and doing the interviews and not being afraid to go talk to the mob guys on the street, et cetera. I mean, you wouldn't believe the interviews that I've had. I, I can't even imagine. <laughs> I, I'd love to hear about some of the conversations, and, and a lot of it is in the book. Um, and this is your third book. Uh, one of the questions I have for you, you're – you know, while you're writing these books, um, you're also um, a law professor. Yes. And you are an attorney and you are a radio host. Um, <laughs> you are also a volunteer in Boston in the um, inner city in the, in the schools. Yep. That's a lot of stuff. And you forgot <laughs> the three kids. That's a and the three kids. <laughs> no, I, I definitely want to talk about the three kids. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. It's it's all about balance, and I think as as a mom, what what I do is that they all go to school. Uh, so I put the kids, my uh, young, the oldest drives now, so she drives the, the first two. Oh, and I good. Put the younger, yeah, I put the youngest on the bus, and when I have a big deadline like Whitey on trial, I put her on the bus. I go upstairs, get my coffee, and just go, or do all my interviews and just go, because I think it's very important to spend the time with them once they get home from school. And of course, it's also a lot of running around driving here there they're athletic uh, my oldest is going to Notre Dame so I'm very excited about that oh that's fall. great yeah. yeah that's great so it's it's a, it's nice to have the balance and it is nice to have the other career yeah ha, tell me how what are the ages of three your three children 17 and mm-hmm. that's Sarah she's the oldest uh, 15 I've got uh, excuse me yeah 15 I have to think about <laughs> it. he's a freshman and then I have a seventh grade daughter who is um, 13. Okay. So 13, 15, 17. Yeah. I'm on the odd years. Yeah. I have a Sarah as well. Love that oh. name. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a great name. So you have two daughters, and I would imagine that a lot of the work that you're doing is a great um, inspiration for them. And I, I wonder if you have conversations with them about the work that you're doing outside of the home and, and you know, how they should be striving for that type of uh, independence as well. Oh, yeah. I, I talked to I, my uh daughters all the time about that and my son about how important it is to um, really make the most of your time and the most of yourself. So a lot of inspirational things. And I, I 
show them how uh, you know how the world really is. I, I sometimes I, my oldest, my 17-year-old, I ran into a, a problem not too long ago with uh, someone who was trying trying to take advantage, and I and I explained to her this is what can happen in in the workforce. You have to be prepared for it. Mm-hmm. So as I go uh, along, I I'll, I share with those things with her, so she's prepared when she goes off to Notre Dame, and when she gets into the work field because it's it's a t- it's tough out there. It's not easy, and you just have to be strong. Right. You know, and we do, we really want to kind of uh, protect our kids and, and you know, not, not show them and tell them things that might give them anxiety. But this is a question I ask a lot of my guests who um, see some of the things that you do. And you've seen a lot of heavy stuff in your career. And I'm wondering what it is that, that keeps you hopeful um, while doing that. Well, I, you know, I, I've seen everything. I've seen bodies. I've seen all that stuff. Um, but what I what keeps me hopeful is is all the good things. The good really outweighs the bad, and the good characters out there, the good people, outweigh the bad as well. If you have one problem, for example, with one jerk of a guy who happens to you know try to take advantage of of women. There's, in my opinion, that's the, maybe just the 1% out there, and you have to deal with it the best you can. But uh, I'd say most people are good people. Most people are out there to try to help each other and move on. And what, what I do is uh, I try to help other people as well. I get satisfaction about that with that. So that's why I go out into the inner cities, uh, schools, and I try to show them what they can do with their lives and writing and, and just you know doing the best you can possibly do, do and achieving your dreams. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I read that you're the president of the Mystery Writers of America, um, New England's chapter there. Yes. I, well, I was for three years. Okay. Uh, president of Mystery. And, and again, there's so many people out there that want to be published, and it's very, very hard. You've got to get an agent and steps go through various steps. So I try to help writers in the community you know, achieve their dreams of getting a novel published. And, and there's ways to do it. And if you keep at it, you can do it. Yeah. So writing is a big part of, of um, I guess, probably a big part of what you enjoy most. Oh, yes. Yes. Writing fiction. Those, the first two were fiction, Under Oath and Under Fire. Whitey on Trial was my first nonfiction. And I do really enjoy the nonfiction. The nonfiction helps with the fiction. You get so many contacts, and it, it's really eye-opening what's out there and who will talk to you. Right. Sometimes I think, yeah. you know, we really don't need fiction because, you know, the nonfiction, there's a, there's a lot of compelling, amazing things going on. Well, sometimes it's, it's hard to believe it. Writing the nonfiction, I say, yeah, if I made this up in a fiction book, no one would believe me, especially right. in the Whitey Bulger case. Right. It's just, it's just like a witness mid-trial dead, you know, uh, a prosecution witness, things like that. I kept saying this summer, you just can't make this up. I, I, you know, thank God it's nonfiction. No one, everybody would put the book down. Right. They thought it was fiction. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I understand you're also um, co-writing a play based on Under Oath. Yes, Under Oath was about uh, Charlestown and the Code of Silence. Charlestown is a, a little neighborhood of Boston, one square mile, that had the highest unsolved murder rate in the country, and that was what Under Oath my book was about. So that translated very well to the stage as a courtroom drama. We've been in development with the Actor Studio in New York. We have a wonderful cast of Broadway actors, and uh, it's just fabulous. So uh, basically, when I say in development, um, plays have to be um, acted out, and you have to have an audience, a critique, 
the play versus a book. Books are very easy to write compared to a play. So, that, so when the play finishes being in development and we have the best, uh, the actor studio is so well known and so famous in New York, then we take it to uh, a theater. And it's hopefully a good one in New York. Do you have any idea when that might be? Not yet, because what happens is I, I take on these books like Whitey on Trial, and I have to put it on the back burner a little bit. But um, it's because I, I'm an instrument. I'm I'm very involved in in that project. So uh, it, it, I don't know. Maybe in the next uh, several years. I, I would, hopefully soon. Oh, okay. Got to get back on that. Yeah. <laughs> You're a little busy doing, okay. you know, a lot of things. Um, one of one of the other roles um, you do is as host of a radio show. Um, yes, it's a crime, uh, and I love that. It had when did you decide to do that? I think about um, maybe a year and a half ago or so. I really enjoyed talking about law and crime, so I do a mix, and and uh, one day I might have a, a, a mobster on there or. Um, uh, the next time a homicide detective. So it's it's very similar to what you would, might get on a law and order. I try to keep it fresh, what's going on in the world today, high, follow high-profile trials. It's been a lot of fun. It's, it's very busy, though, as you know, to, to uh, keep your own show going. Right, exactly. <laughs> Margaret, what do you think it is about you that um, mobsters <laughs> feel comfortable opening up to you? And, and talking to you. Well, this is interesting because about a year ago, at this time last year, I um, approached a mobster, and he's a made guy in the Italian mafia. He is about mid-40s, and I approached him because the Whitey Bulger trial was coming up. I got the book contract for Whitey on trial, and I knew that the trial would be last June. So I did a lot of preliminary research. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to reach out to this guy, because when he was in his 20s, he uh, made a move into Whitey's territory, and he was beaten up by Whitey and his gang, sent back to Winter Hill and the Italian Mafia. So the Italian Mafia had to negotiate with Whitey's gang over this guy. Like, they could have absolutely killed him, but they didn't because of, uh, you know, the alliances that were going on at the time. So I uh, got in touch with him, uh, and we met. And I'll never forget, we met in Faneuil Hall in Boston. And I am there's no doubt in my mind there was a federal agent there the whole time taking pictures with his phone I, because this guy is pretty well known well to them anyway so you know i was really nervous about meeting him met him in a public place obviously he's not going to kill me or anything like that i knew that but basically these guys if they trust you they'll open up to you so we've met several times and over the course of time we've actually you're going to laugh about this we've actually become good friends and he will tell me anything i need to know about what's going on in in the italian mafia so i know i know so much it's not even funny wow um, that's a good and, person to have your back yeah yeah <laughs> actually no kidding i swear no kidding he would he would you know, we've become friends, and of course, you, if anybody wronged me, watch out, that type of thing. But right. it's really interesting to, to see what his background is and uh, what his, uh, you know, how he deals with the feds, because they, they have to deal with the feds these days, how they, you know, 
oh, God, just how they operate and what is going on in the Italian mafia. How are they making their money? So he's one of the best sources I'll ever have. And, and you know, it's funny. We were texting each other this morning. <laughs> but, but I Did you tell say, him you were coming on my show? Absolutely. But, but also, I will tell you, he's that uh, people think, I'm sure your listeners are thinking, well, you know, he must have an ulterior motive. This guy is so um, up, up and up. Like, he's he. It has not flirted with me once. Like he is so straight in it that, which makes me feel good because you, know, you never know. But he he is just the, one of the most honorable bad guys I know. Well, you know what that that's what's so amazing to me about yeah. these t- these these men is their mindset. Yeah. Um, because you know a lot of they talk openly and you know they're doing some really bad things, but on the flip side they feel as if they're honorable. Yeah. And you know it's all about family. And, and loyalty, that's yes. what's so amazing to me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, you know, to the point where I know he gave his mother um, my number just in case something happened to him. Wow. Oh, my <laughs> like, gosh. I know. I know. It's, but, but it's really interesting. Again, it's a, a writer needs to be out there and be in contact and be close with law enforcement and the mob, um, but you have to pick pick and choose the right. You can't just go up to any mob guy. You have to really be careful and pick and choose. Pick those public places, and again, it's both sides where you're building trust in in each other, and and that's what it takes. And Margaret, you were um, or are, you're a prosecutor, are you not? I was a prosecutor for a number of years in the high crime area, and I eventually went into civil litigation in Boston. It was just, you know, for more money. I sold out. (laughs) Sorry, but I did. (laughs) You know, one of the questions, I I will tell you, I I read most of the book. I didn't get through the entire book because it it came kind of late to me, and um, I I didn't have time to finish the whole thing, but I, I just have so many questions. One of the questions I have is why the Italian mafia was more important um, to the federal government than the Winter Hill Gang. Okay, well, back you got to go back to the night, like the 1960s. Okay, and, and you've got Washington, you have J. Edgar Hoover and Bobby Kennedy. They wanted to crush the Italian mafia at all costs. That was the mindset. Take terrorism away, right? Like, remember when we wanted to get Osama bin Laden at all costs? That was the mindset back then against the Italian mafia. So, as a result, the FBI in 1965, around that time, developed the Top Echelon Informant Program. So, they would develop these top echelon informants that had, you know, access to the to the biggest mob guys out there. And it started right here in Boston in the mid-60s with Joe the Animal Barboza, who was the FBI's top echelon informant, because the FBI, going down from Washington on down, just had to crack the Italian mafia. They got in trouble, though, by using these top echelon informants. Joe Barboza ended up um, with the FBI knowing about it. They, they ended up um, putting four guys on trial for a crime they didn't commit, and the guys were convicted. And it, at the time, they got the death penalty, but then the death penalty was taken off the books. But these guys spent 30 years in prison. So... And once they fi- we, we figured it all out, the estates of these guys, and some of them are still alive, 
um, received millions and millions of taxpayer dollars. Okay, but did the FBI learn their lesson? No, they didn't. They still wanted to go after the Italian mafia. So therefore, Whitey Bulger and Stephen the Rifleman Flemmy were developed by the Department of Justice and the Boston FBI. John Connolly, who I interviewed in prison, was the guy in the Boston office, the agent, who was just amazing. He had a knack for developing these top echelon informants. He had a number of them, and Whitey Bulger was one of them. So he would get, John Connolly would get accolades. He'd get pay raises, pats on the back. He was the star of the Boston office at the time for developing Whitey, because what Whitey did was he was able to help the FBI take out the Italian mob in Boston, the Angelos, the big Angelo arrest was, uh, he made front pages of, of the newspapers back then. Once the Italians were taken out of the North End and they were weakened in New England, it paved the way for Whitey Bulger to move right in with the, with the Irish guys, the Irish gang, right. and of course they just they just substituted for the Italians, but the FBI was stuck because they had helped Whitey so much. Whitey had the goods on them that Whitey was able to uh, reign for decades as a result. Yeah, Margaret, hold that thought for me. We have to take a quick break um, for our sponsors, and we'll be right back. It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks, and some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. That's where the mutual fund store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face to face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. And your mutual fund store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. The client comes first at the Mutual Fund Store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. To learn more, visit MutualFundStore.com or call the Mutual Fund Store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330. Hello? Hi, Kelly. It's Sue. Are you and Joe going to the kids' game after school today? No, we are stuck in traffic again on our way to the hospital for Joe's IVIG infusion. As usual, we will be at the hospital all day and won't be home in time. This is really becoming a problem with our work and family commitments. Hey, my friend's son receives his infusions at home with Walgreens. You know they are not just a retail pharmacy. Walgreens has a national home infusion program. He used to miss school, but now the Walgreens nurses see him at home after school. Wow, infusions in the comfort of our own home? Yes, Walgreens expert infusion nurses and pharmacists are available 24-7 to provide safe, one-on-one -on -one clinical support around your schedule. Talk to your doctor and call Walgreens Infusion Services at 877-974-4844 or go to womentowatch.net for complete details. We will, if we ever get out of this traffic, hearty har har. We can't wait to have these infusions at home with Walgreens. Thanks. Be well. Are you looking for assistance with your IT demands? Would you like to know that the people you hire have your best interest at heart? InSource is one of the region's most distinguished and fastest growing technology firms in the Philadelphia area. Their only concern is to deliver your business long-term success to avoid reacting to daily crisis. 
Recognized as a top employer of IT consultants, they thrive on helping their clients exceed expectations. InSource delivers reliable and effective solutions to the technology needs of both small and large businesses as well as nonprofits and does so with the goals of your business in mind. With over a decade of recognized success, InSource provides its clients with both IT staffing needs as well as putting highly qualified project teams together. InSource is also a partner of ServiceNow, the fastest growing software company in the country. Contact InSource today at 610-592-0800 or visit their website at InSourceNow.com to find the quality help you need. When you are shopping, do you chuckle at the one-size-fits-all tags? Well, wealth management should not take a one-size-fits-all approach either. Companies offer different products and services for women, and they should. All women are different. Your plan should be as unique and personal as you are. So why are you still following your one-size-fits-all financial advisor? Financial advisor Liz Barker of RBC Wealth Management understands this. Her area of expertise is women in transition and being retirement ready. Call Liz Barker Financial Advisor at RBC Wealth Management at 484-530-2806. Again, that number is 484 484- 530-2806 or visit her online at www.lizbarker.com to schedule your complimentary custom wealth management plan today. RBC Wealth Management, a division of RBC Capital Markets, LLC, member NYSE, FINRA, SIPC. Welcome back, everyone, to Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm joined today by Margaret McLean. And Margaret McLean is the author of Whitey on Trial, and we're talking all about the um, the situation in Boston. Um, Whitey was the head of the Winter Hill Gang in Boston, and uh, Margaret is an attorney and a, and a law professor and an author of several books, and this is her latest um, Margaret, I, as I mentioned, I have so many questions about the book and, and the story behind it. And we were talking about why, you know, the feds were interested in the Italian mafia as opposed to the Winter Hill Gang. And I have a lot of questions about that aspect of it. And you were talking about the fact that, you know, in order to get um, to one particular person that maybe is the top priority, you have to kind of let some other things go. Um, talk about that a little bit and, and why that's happening and how it's happening. Well, that's correct. If you're the FBI or the DEA, you have to somehow develop informants, and there's different ways to go about it, and that's what I did get into in the book. So what the FBI did was instead of going working from the bottom up, and of course they did a little bit of that, and when I say the bottom up, go for the low-level bookmakers, get them to turn, and then work your way up to the leaders like Whitey Bulger or Stephen the Rifleman Fleming. Mm-hmm. But um, what the FBI did at the time, they, they developed Whitey Bulger and Stephen Fleming, and they were stuck because they, why develop the top? And who, who, who's, who are they going to give you, lower-level guys? And, and that's what Whitey did. Of course, at the time, they gave him the Italian mafia. But then these guys, these top guys, were able to just, just run Boston for decades. So that's not good either, and right. murder people and extort people and make millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. So the state police, and in, in one of the some of the interviews in my book are interesting because I had those questions as well as I was watching the trial or write, writing the book. 
Um, okay, so how do you catch these bad guys? You, you've got to make contacts within the criminal world. So the colonel of the state police who, who worked on the Whitey uh, Bulger investigation for years, but, but his investigations were always stymied by the feds. The feds ruined his investigations. This guy, I can't believe he still continued, and I, I have a lot of respect for him, uh, Colonel Foley. He told me, as the trial was going on, he was the second witness of the trial, but he, he became a, a, a friend and a uh, kind of like a colleague, really. And he said um, they made the mistake by developing these, the top echelon informant program is all wrong. You need to start at the lower levels of work and work up. They were starting at the highest levels and working down. And one of the quotes in the book that I recall is that Colonel Foley said, look, if you're going after Hitler, um, why align yourself with somebody like Hitler? What's he going to give up, some of his field marshals? It just didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So if you read the book, you kind of understand the different philosophies of developing these informants. And informants are very important. They're rats in the criminal world, but they, they can be flipped. It depends on how much you have on them if they're going to go to jail. And they don't want to go to jail. It's very, my mob guy told me it's very hard to do time. Meaning what? Oh, time in prison time. No, no. I mean, it, when oh. they he said it's very hard to do time. Yes. Okay. He means it's some of these guys will flip, will become rats because they can't do their time. Uh, sometimes, uh, in order to to you know get uh, achieve a higher position within the mob, for example, mm -hmm. the leadership will look into how much time a guy's done. Because if somebody hasn't done time, that could be a red flag, too. Are they working with the government? Because that's the thing. Who, sometimes you don't know who's working with the government and, and who's, who's you know, not working with the government. So, so the, if somebody's able to do time, that's a good thing if you want to rise up in the Italian mafia. <laughs> so you need no, to, seriously. <laughs> time needs to be on your resume. If you have time yeah, you know, on your yes. resume. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, no, no question about that. You yeah. have to be able to do time. And there's some guy, um, my guy, my mob guy, my source said, there. you'd be surprised some of the toughest guys out there, some of the toughest murderers out there, they're afraid to do crime, uh, time, afraid to do the time. He's, he's seen them break down, and he's heard about them breaking down in tears and crying at the prospect of having to do time. Oh, my gosh. It, well, yeah. it's such a, it's such a um, I don't know that you ever really know what the truth is. Um, True. Right? Yes. <laughs> it's a vicious cycle. And, you know, when I yes. think about this story alone, I wonder, will we ever know the truth? Um, you know, Whitey said I was not an informant. Yeah. And, you know, you have you have the mobsters, you have the police, you have the FBI. And within all those three groups, there's honesty and there's dishonesty. That's true. It, so it's just, uh, yeah, I don't know that, you know, I don't know that the um, problem will, will ever be solved um, because there's always that you don't know which side people are on. That's true. And I think what happened with the Whitey Bulger saga is the feds got themselves in too deep. And they, they looked the other way. They knew he was committing murders. Some information was leaked. And, of course, once you get yourself in deep, you try to cover up. And the cover-ups didn't just involve this one rogue agent. 
John Connolly, his boss who testified was covering up and receiving bribes, but there were people above that boss, higher-ups in the FBI that knew about this and looked the other way. And also it goes all the way to the Department of Justice. And as a former prosecutor, what really intrigued me was after doing the John Connolly interview, which took about two months, you know, John Connolly's telling me, look, you know, he's sitting in prison. And he's saying, look, I, you know, I'm not, there, there are higher-ups that are still, uh, should come forward. Justice isn't being served. And he pointed me to documents from 1979 that are still being covered up by executive privilege that runs all the way to the President of the United States. There's so many documents that, that they're still covering up. I mean, come on, from 1979, don't we deserve to look at those? Right. <clears throat> right. And you know what? That was one of the questions I had. Why is Connolly in prison, but not John Morris and Jeremiah O'Sullivan? Oh, well, Jeremiah O'Sullivan is dead. Conveniently. Okay. Dead. <laughs> that answers that, that question. Yeah, yeah. The, Jeremiah O'Sullivan, for your listeners, was the uh, U.S. attorney, uh, part of the strike force, who um, allegedly made this immunity deal with. Whitey. Whitey claims that Jeremiah O'Sullivan gave him immunity to commit crimes for all because Whitey had had provided the FBI and the Department of Justice with so much. So conveniently, Jeremiah is now dead, and Whitey was trying to get the the immunity issue out at trial. He wanted the jurors to know, look, this is the head of the strike force in Boston. He's an attorney. He works for the government. He allowed me to do this. And you know, if the government is giving a criminal immunity to commit crimes, that criminal should not be prosecuted in the first place because they had immunity. So that was the issue there. Whitey lost on that. Um, But Going back to your question, um, which was uh, what was your question again? I lost my track. <laughs> well, I, I actually, <laughs> I get so I, involved in this. yeah, no, no. I was wondering, what, you know, why John Connolly ended up in prison, but not oh, yes. John Morris and, and and Jeremiah Sullivan, because he 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 may yes. be dead, but he didn't serve any time, right? He didn't serve any time. Um, as, as a matter of fact, but what what happens here is you're either with the government or you're against them. And what happened was John Morris immediately, um, well, not immediately, actually. He, After many years of lying, he, he lied to the Ethics Committee. He, uh, the prosecutors ultimately got to him. And he was willing to testify against John Connolly. Basically, sometimes it, it works out that whoever gets in first gets the deal with the government. So uh, Whoever tells the truth first. Well, we don't right? even know if it's the truth, but whoever but, folds, okay, and okay. says, okay, I'll cooperate. Let, that's a good word, cooperate. Mm-hmm. I'll cooperate with, with the government if you give me a deal. So John Morris worked out a deal for himself where he uh, admitted to all his wrongdoings, but they gave him immunity from prosecution. So therefore, he was allowed to uh, completely retire with his pension, and now he's a wine consultant out in California that just killed the victims in, in the Whitey case. I sat with them all summer as we mm. watched the trial. They they couldn't stand John Morris because John Morris was involved in leaks about informant status. Uh, the FBI, they were trying to break um, a murder that occurred down in Oklahoma, and um, they were using an, an informant. John Morris leaked that information, which was top secret classified, to Whitey Bulger. Whitey ended up machine gunning down the informant plus an innocent bystander uh, along with him. 
uh, mm-hmm. because of these FBI leaks. And John Morris was very responsible for that. He apologized to the victims at the trial. It was very emotional. The victims did not accept the apology. Um, I was sitting right next to Pat Donahue, who's innocent, whose husband was uh, mowed down right in Boston. And she said, because of John Morris, and she said, absolutely no way. So John Morris worked that deal, and the government decided let's go against, uh, let's let's go with the rogue agent theory that John Connolly did it all on his own, and and therefore they've convicted him, and therefore he's he's uh, in jail. Yeah. Um, so so you know they they pick one guy, and I'm not saying I'm not saying Connolly's 100 percent innocent here, but. That's the way they work. They pick one guy, throw him in jail, and the other guys get immunity. Yeah, it's it doesn't seem right. No, well, you know, it's funny because you know I, I'm reading the book and I'm feeling sorry for John Connolly, and I'm thinking, well, he's you know he also um, was not doing the right thing, right. but he was at the bottom of the you know of the totem pole and right. um, had to pay the price for everyone. Right, and you know that that was a very difficult interview to get because by by this time the the trial had occurred, and everybody would come up to me and say say why isn't John Connolly, who was Whitey's main handler in the FBI, why isn't he testifying? And I couldn't answer that question for people, so I, I looked into it. The prosecution didn't want to call him because they were afraid that uh, more government corruption would come out and the jurors wouldn't like that. The defense didn't want to call him because Whitey didn't want to admit that he was John Connolly's informant. So mm-hmm. so I called the chapter the, the, the missing witness. And um, when I got to Connolly, it was very hard. Like I said, I was I was very very close with some of the victims' relatives. I had gone on vacation with Pat Donahue, whose mother whose uh, husband was murdered, and I knew she hated Connolly. So um, I didn't want to look like I was it, I was giving Connolly a soapbox for his propaganda. Right. Right. But yeah. So I had to be careful and ask him some very tough interview questions. He, of course, wanted, you know, he's sitting in jail. He wanted um, some of the truth to come out, and he said he would have testified. This is what he would have testified about. So so I really tried to concentrate on the trial and the upper levels of government corruption. And mm-hmm. you know what? The, the vic- I was nervous because I didn't really tell some of the victims that, this is this was coming out in the book right. until the end, and we uh, but they've been very supportive and and they don't have a problem with the Connolly interview. Let or me the Whitey letter. That's another issue. The I Whitey know. Letter. Well, I want one more question about Connolly. I want to ask you a question. When you were did, do you did he show remorse to you for for where his life led? John Connolly, yeah, he did. He's he did show remorse he he feels for the donahue family i know that um he's both bitter and uh yeah he he definitely did show remorse but uh i think he he feels that it's um he feels that you know for so many years he was given accolades and and promotions based on his ability to develop these top echelon informants and then they hung him out to dry right exactly um Here's a question for you that, you know, Whitey wrote you that letter. What what was the most uh, remarkable thing in that letter uh, that he said to you? Well, first of all, the fact that I got a letter was, was quite remarkable. He, it's postmarked, um, gosh, it, the, the, the date actually when he actually wrote the letter was shortly after the verdict within, I think it was eight days really of, of the verdict. We were very disappointed that Whitey did not testify and tell us his side of the story and start pointing fingers at who, who else is responsible. Um, so 
the whole press was that you should have seen it was the national media was will he testify or will he not so we were all so disappointed and the the way the letter came about was um this is kind of interesting whitey's attorney hank brennan we did not know each other at the beginning of the trial or through most of it he would listen to me every morning on on uh, NPR because I would at the same time every morning I would give a trial recap and what I thought was was going on in the case and the legal analysis. Little did I know, Hank was listening every day to see how he did. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so your your Hank, review of him. <laughs> I had no idea. Yes, because at times I was tough. I said, Hank Brennan, sit down. Um, you're you're going on too long. You started out with a great cross examination, but now sit down. So he was listening, and I didn't know. But eventually, um, you know, we we got to know each other, and uh, he said, you know what? I've listened to a lot of the reports, and you were the only fair one um, because a lot of the Boston media was slanted against Whitey, against him, and and all that. So. It, it was through Hank Brennan that I, I said, "Look, you know, uh, why did your client didn't testify? But if he wants to tell me anything, uh, tell him to send me a letter." And I gave Hank my address. And th- what do you know? Wow! <laughs> it was after the verdict, that's how that came about. So, quite frankly, I was um, went to the mailbox. It was summertime, barefoot, you know, like you know, just working on my garden. Believe it or not, <laughs> and. Uh, there amongst the bills is a letter from the Plymouth House of Correction and James Whitey Baldry. I, I almost died. Oh, and my then, gosh. You probably couldn't <laughs> open like, it oh fast my, enough. No, I couldn't open it. And uh, the other thing was, after I read it, um, I thought, wow, uh, what are the victim's relatives going to think? I'm giving Whitey a soapbox now. So, right, uh, right. And I it explained that in the, in the first chapter. But as far as uh, what he said, he rambled on a bit, but he was trying to tell me about the upper levels, that this is the way the FBI has worked for years, since 1965. He explained, you know, what kind of, you know, the uh, top echelon informant program and the, the guys having to go to prison, how he thought his girlfriend, Catherine Gregg, was just railroaded by the government when she got eight years, which is a lot of time, by the way, because the FBI told me that the lead agent said I've, that he's never seen anybody get eight years for harboring a fugitive. Usually it's only... Um, like two, if or or no time at all, mm-hmm. and um, I just think that uh, just in general, he, what he he's told me how he thought it was a, a sham trial and and why he he ultimately didn't testify. You know what? It's surprising to me that he cared enough, um, you know, to to kind of not not to share that with you, but why why did it matter to him? Do you think um, to get this part of the story out? Well, he, um, I mean, he's going to prison and, you know, it's all kind of behind him and, and he's a bad guy, you know? Yes, yes. He is a bad guy. Um, but he also is, uh, you know, he, he, he worked, he, you know, he was, he was a brilliant guy. He wasn't just a bad guy, but a lot of times when he's 84 years old now, he's looking at his own legacy and, um, What's his legacy going to be? And, and therefore, I think he, that's why he wrote me the letter. I think uh, that's why originally I thought he was going to testify. What did he have to lose? Um, I, I, I'm actually su- surprised he didn't. But um, part of it was 
he hates the Boston media so much, except me. <laughs> he, he wanted to let them think he was going to testify. He leaked some information himself that he was, and then he was like fooled everybody by not testifying. He also did that to the lead prosecutor, made him prepare a lengthy cross-examination, and then he, he got him too. So a little twist of the knife um, mm. in the back. But Another interesting thing you might not know about, he was going to appear on 60 Minutes after the trial mm-hmm. um, and because hitman John Moderato appeared on 60 Minutes. Whitey wanted to as well. Like, you know, these guys have big egos, but the FBI got in the way of that. And, w- and following the trial this fall, football season, um, they did a Whitey Bulger special, and if you'll notice, it was all about the FBI and how they caught Whitey Bulger. And I was watching that with Hank Brennan, Whitey's attorney, and we were just shaking our heads like, there, there, there's the FBI again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what, Margaret? We're going to take one last quick break, and when we come back, I, I'd like to talk about Mortarano. We didn't talk about him. I had a question about, about him as well. We'll be right back. Okay. Hello? Hi, Kelly. It's Sue. Are you and Joe going to the kids' game after school today? No, we are stuck in traffic again on our way to the hospital for Joe's IVIG infusion. As usual, we will be at the hospital all day and won't be home in time. This is really becoming a problem with our work and family commitments. Hey, my friend's son receives his infusions at home with Walgreens. You know they are not just a retail pharmacy. Walgreens has a national home infusion program. He used to miss school, but now the Walgreens nurses see him at home after school. Wow, infusions in the comfort of our own home? Yes, Walgreens expert infusion nurses and pharmacists are available 24-7 to provide safe, one-on-one clinical support around your schedule. Talk to your doctor and call Walgreens Infusion Services at 877-974-4844 or go to womentowatch.net for complete details. We will, if we ever get out of this traffic, hearty har har. We can't wait to have these infusions at home with Walgreens. Thanks. Be well. Are you looking for assistance with your IT demands? Would you like to know that the people you hire have your best interest at heart? InSource is one of the region's most distinguished and fastest growing technology firms in the Philadelphia area. Their only concern is to deliver your business long-term success to avoid reacting to daily crisis. Recognized as a top employer of IT consultants, they thrive on helping their clients exceed expectations. InSource delivers reliable and effective solutions to the technology needs of both small and large businesses as well as nonprofits and does so with the goals of your business in mind. With over a decade of recognized success, InSource provides its clients with both IT staffing needs as well as putting highly qualified project teams together. InSource is also a partner of ServiceNow, the fastest growing software company in the country. Contact InSource today at 610-592-0800 or visit their website at InSourceNow.com to find the quality help you need. It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks. And some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. That's where the Mutual Fund Store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face-to-face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. And your Mutual Fund Store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. 
The client comes first at the Mutual Fund Store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. To learn more, visit MutualFundStore.com or call the Mutual Fund Store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330. When you are shopping, do you chuckle at the one-size-fits-all tags? Well, wealth management should not take a one-size-fits-all approach either. Companies offer different products and services for women, and they should. All women are different. Your plan should be as unique and personal as you are. So why are you still following your one-size-fits-all financial advisor? Financial advisor Liz Barker of RBC Wealth Management understands this. Her area of expertise is women in transition and being retirement ready. Call Liz Barker, financial advisor at RBC Wealth Management at 484-530-2806. Again, that number is 484-530-2806. Or visit her online at www.lizbarker.com to schedule your complimentary custom wealth management plan today. RBC Wealth Management, a division of RBC Capital Markets, LLC, member NYSE, FINRA, SIPC. Welcome back to Women to Watch, everyone. I'm in the uh, I'm not on in the studio with Margaret. Margaret is calling us from from Boston um, today, and Margaret McLean is the author of Whitey on Trial, and we're talking all about the um, uh, the crime and and corruption uh, in Boston that led to James Whitey Bulger's conviction. Um, one of the things, Margaret, I wanted to ask you about was uh, Am I pronouncing this right, Martirano? Martirano. Martirano, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he he seemed to be to me equally as bad as Whitey, but yet, um, you know, they didn't seem to have the same focus on him as they did Whitey. Well, it depends on how you define the word bad. Yeah, um, I guess so. Right, yeah. number Whitey, of murders. Well, here's the difference. Whitey was the leader. Whitey was born with leadership skills, and his brother has the same leadership skills. Who he was rose to be president of the Senate, Billy Bulger. But Whitey was able to uh, uh, just he had a charm about him. He still does, and and he he's able to draw people in. Moderano was. Whitey's hitman. He was really good at what he did. You just give him orders. We need to take out this guy, that guy. And uh, Moderano would go. He was cold-blooded. He'd go down and you know shoot one guy between the eyes. He'd shoot his friends. He'd shoot his enemies. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter as long as he had really orders from Whitey. Um, so. I think of Martirano as a follower and, and a tough guy. i got to be careful. What he, Martirano's still walking the streets. Right. I've said all sorts of stuff about him. And uh, Whitey was the leader. So the big, big difference here. Yeah, You know, I guess I'm naive when I think, so, you know, they, they knew that. He was the guy doing it. Why wouldn't they put him in jail and continue to, to hunt down, you know, Whitey? Well, here's the thing. Moderano, they caught him down in Florida. He was on the lam, and they brought him in. So there were many, many, many unsolved murders in uh, Boston, um, going all the way back to the 1960s. A lot of cold cases. And I, a lot of, th- this was one of the big controversies of the Whitey Bulger trial. How come Moder- John Moderano, the hitman, who is responsible for, oh my gosh, I, I don't even know how many murders, but, right. uh, but, but uh, 20 anyway, mm-hmm. um, that we know 20 of. 20 that we know of. Right. Uh, for 20 murders, 
cold-blooded, cold-hearted murders. He got 12 years, and now he's out walking the streets. He's, he's still involved. There's no question in, in some aspect of organized crime. He's a big man on campus, okay, here, mm-hmm. here in the Boston area. He's actually kind of famous. So He probably likes that we're talking about him. He loves him. it. Yeah. Oh, he's got an ego, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so there are questions about that, and that was brought out at trial. In the book, I... It's explained in the behind-the-scenes section when, when dealing when Moderano takes the stand. One of the one of the my favorite interviews in the book was uh, the former United States Attorney who was in charge of all of uh, Boston was a man named Donald Stern, and he had to okay the plea deal. It took about over a year to to get a plea bargain out of Moderano, and the reason the government did it, they claim, is because they wanted to catch. John Connolly, the the FBI handler, mm-hmm. and they wanted to ultimately get Whitey Bulger, who was still on the lam. But at the time, the focus was on Connolly. And what happened here was it took a long time to work on Moderano. My mob guy on the inside tells me that Moderano is one of these guys that doesn't want to do time, uh, doesn't like to do time. Now, Moderano may, may, would definitely say that's not true, but, but that's the inside scoop on that. And he was all to ultimately work the deal. The government said, look, if you don't talk to us, you're going away for life, um, possibly death, because Florida, where one of the, murder, uh, one of the murders was committed, is, was death penalty, and so was Oklahoma, and, and they death penalty. And so they had some evidence, but not a lot. And it's really explained well in the book why the government chose to work, work the deal. And they, uh, Donald Stern told me that... Um, he hated the thought of making the deal with the devil, and mm-hmm. that's Moderano, right. but felt that he had to, uh, in order to bring out the, the government corruption with, with the FBI and to give the victims some closure. But it's still very controversial. Yeah, yeah. You know what, Margaret, the book, I love the way the book is written, and you talk about those behind-the-scenes, um, you know, sections throughout. It makes it so... Um, so real. You really do feel like you're sitting in the courtroom and you're 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 learning about the um, the feelings and the emotions of the people that are speaking. It's really well written. Thank you, thank you. I, I enjoyed doing it. You know, I went to trial every day, so I tried to capture the the uh, the emotions of the trial. Let me tell you, it was the most amazing trial I've ever seen. The, the stellar cross examinations. Attorneys on both sides were were just uh, stars. But I wanted to get deeper than that, so I took, took the uh, the trial, the emotion, how we all felt, the hot summer uh, that was last summer, and then you know take it behind the scenes and you know from from all every single player involved, from the prosecutors to the defense attorney, to the mob, to um, uh, law enforcement, and of course the victims' relatives were were a big help as well. Yeah, that's a that's a big aspect of all of this, you know, all of the family members, especially the ones who um, the victims really were innocent and had nothing to do with what was going on in Boston and, and, right. and the crime. Right, right. So there was a lot of cases of mistaken identity yes. where they got the went after the wrong guy. So it wasn't just mobsters who were the victims here. And Whitey went on and extorted ordinary businessmen, and they testified, and, and the bookies. So really, some of the testimony is actually quite humorous. 
Um, you, you, and, and it's also an education if you're really interested in, in the history of crime and how did bookmaking work way back then? Right. How did they lay off the bets? So I, I thought the math behind that was really interesting. And then, you know, how do you, if you're Whitey, how did he really rise to the top? And, and all the drugs had to go through. He got a piece of all the drugs that were sold, all the bookmaking. So it's, we're talking millions and millions and millions uh, of dollars that came in. And, and, you know, you wonder where some of that money started. Still is hidden around someplace. Exactly, and that's a whole other show. I mean, yeah. it is fascinating. It's fascinating to me, and I I wish we could see exactly how the day to day business end of it works. You know? Oh yeah. Well, you know, I give you a little bit of that in the book uh, as to how it worked and and how you know you had to pay Whitey tribute and you you know he would send people to collect and God forbid you didn't do it, you're dead. Whitey instilled fear in others, so people paid up. And some of the tribute, I mean, the ordinary business guys, like some, one guy gave an opinion on a on a fence, a property line on a fence, and Whitey fined him two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Wow, Good stuff like that. Yeah, yeah it's incredible. Um, know. You know, Margaret, we only have a minute left. It, it it flew by, and of course, I didn't get through half my questions. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> so we'll have you on again. Um, but um, listen, if if any of the listeners um, want to get in touch with you for any any reason um can you give some contact information yes you can go to whiteyontrial.com that's the website for the book and my contact information is is there and feel free to if you have any questions they can email me people do writers or uh, readers seem fascinated with the behind the scene with the trial but also the behind the scenes and and the level of government corruption that the book exposes yeah and and i'm quite interested in seeing what's next for you so well, stay a in lot touch of things yeah on the burner maybe i may do hernandez a behind the scenes trial book on him so we'll see. Oh, interesting. He's okay. the, uh, the Patriot player that was involved in murder. Yes. Okay. Terrific. Um, Margaret, thank you so much for, for joining me this morning and being on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Great questions. Good. Thank you. Have a great week, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch. Um, thanks so much for tuning in. And if you have any questions for me, feel free to go to womentowatch.net, women, the number two, watch.net. Thanks so much.